Today's Lunch and Learn from the Know Thyself and Know Thy Relationship series is titled Stop Holding Me Back. Subtitles, want to move forward in a big way, feel like that someone is holding you back. Is it one or the other? Maybe not. Come and find out. You'll soon see that this is based on a talk from the Rebbe, the entire lecture. So an introduction, an introduction. I've done this introduction before. I want to do it again so we stay focused on this. The Hachaim Institute was established to offer an approach on life struggle from a bird's eye view rather than a worm's eye view. What is the difference between a bird's eye view and a worm's eye view? Primarily, the difference is their paradigm. There's a cute saying, the early bird gets the worm. There are those that say the early worm gets eaten. It's a different paradigm. The bird is one that feels and believes and has faith that if I wake up early, I work diligently, I will be blessed to see the fruits of my labor. While the worm's eye view is different. The worm's eye view is, it's not going to work out. It's, it's uh, there, you know, the early worm gets eaten. What am I going to work hard for? At best, at best, the early, the worm's view is one of survival, but success, growth is out of the question for the worm's paradigm. So we're approaching this through the worm's eye view and the bird's eye view, we're here to approach it through the bird's eye view. Now I want to share with you the difference between the paradigm of the bird and the worm has a lot what to do with their geographical point of view. Physically, the worm is looking up at problems. He's in the depths of the problem looking up and the bird's point of view is from a point of freedom looking down at the challenges at hand very different. With that being said, I want to share with you another difference in the paradigm. Hachayim approaches the entire approach not from understanding the fault and challenges of humans, but rather from the certainty of divinity. What does that mean? What it means is that human beings, as you know, the rule of Einstein, laws of relativity, we all belong to relativity. We evolve, we change, we react to environments. We come from a certain point of uncertainty. We're constantly changing. On the other hand, you have the point of divinity, which is certainty. It's the blueprints of the world. Thus, when we have the gift of Torah, what God really gave us is the gift of the absolute to the human being of relativity. So when I talk about Hachayim's point of view, the bird's eye point of view, the point of certainty, the point of liberation, I, by definition, am a creation of freedom and liberty, but I do deal with challenges. When you come from that point of paradigm, that point of view, you're coming from the bird's eye view. And that's what Hachayim always tries to do. We try to look into the Torah. We try to find, okay, what does Hashem tell us? What does God in His Torah tell us from this? Because when we come from that point of view, you're coming from a bird's eye view. You're coming from standing at a point where I am a creation of liberty. And uh, let me deal from that point of view with the challenges. Rather than the worm who's just let me survive today. Let me not be eaten today. That's not where we're coming from. Okay? With that being said, one more introduction is I want to explain the question. The question here was, want to move forward in a big way? Feel like that someone is holding you back? Is it one or the other? Which is a very, very, very point, very strong question. So let's begin here. 
guys, we mentioned Einstein's rule of uh, law of relativity. I want to now mention Einstein's definition of insanity. Einstein's definition of insanity is doing things the same way, expecting different results. That is the human being's greatest struggle of change. Now, what happens here is we all, we all dream of a change in results. We want to see things work differently. We want to take our level higher. We want to be in success. We want to grow. We want to know that we're fulfilling the potential that God gave us. And we feel that presently we're not yet. So we all dream of this change. But then there's a challenge. What is the challenge? The challenge is that most of us would rather live within the uncomfortability of the known, which is my comfort zone, than to live in the freedom of the unknown. Which is why so many of us shy away from change. Yeah, we want the outcome of change. We want different results. But to change a habitual pattern, to change the way I do things, that uncomfortable place, believe it or not, would rather be in the discomfort of whatever our challenges and undesirable results of the way we do things is, then to make a change and enter into the uncomfortability of the unknown. So I want to share with you a story that happened with me. I was in Albany for Purim. Um, as a single boy, a bocher, I was sent there by the Aleph Institute that deals with prisons, Jewish inmates. There were three prisons in Albany. I don't know what it is now. At the time, there was a top security, high security male, high security female, and then there was one more which was not high security. We were programmed, we were set to go to all three, make programs there. As I was waiting in the, you know, waiting to be cleared security in the uh, high, the high security, maximum security prison, I started a conversation with one of the guards there. And I asked him, what is the shortest period of time since a person left these doors and was brought back into these doors? His answer completely shocked me. He told me it was within 20 minutes. I was 20 minutes, a guy was, after serving time, set free from maximum prison and brought back in? What he told me after that was very, very unbelievable. He told me he went out, raped a woman in the parking lot, and was brought back right back in. And then he told me it was our fault. I was like, what? He says he was begging us not to put him back out on the streets. But rules are rules, and we had to let him go. We had to actually not let him go. We had to force him to leave prison. He did what he did, not because he wanted to rape a woman. He did what he did because he wanted to go back in. Very, very interesting. And he explained to me why. He said, you have to understand, these guys serve here serious time. They know the system. They've mastered the system. There's a certain seniority. They're already at a place of rank within the system. He didn't want to go out. Yeah, this is prison and that's freedom. But he wasn't at this point familiar. His habitual behavioral patterns was perfect to the system. Which, by the way, not part of today's lecture, but there's another whole conversation whether legally they have a right to call it correctional facilities because they don't correct people. It's punitive. It's not correctional. 
But with that being said, there's a lot of work going on in, in the house and everything about laws of how to prepare them and train them back into, you know, integrate them back in society. We haven't yet succeeded in that. But the point here is that he was more comfortable in that discomfort of prison, which was now familiar to him, than he was in the freedom of the outside world, which was unfamiliar to him. This is where the struggle of change will always take place. The dreams of different results, the uncomfortability of change. That has been the topic of many of previous lectures that we had under HaChayim. Today we're not going to talk about that. Today we're actually going to talk about not the challenges of your personal inner war between changing patterns, looking for different results. We're actually going to talk about the challenges of the people around you. It is interesting that as you begin to make a change, the people around you, the ones that you expect to get the most support from, will actually be the people who give you the most agita. They will present to you the most friction. And you wonder to yourself, why? Wasn't this the person who was quetching nonstop about my behavioral patterns? quetching nonstop about the results that I have been producing, or shall we say, have not been producing. And here I'm trying to make a change, and this individual, the he or she, the significant other in my life, that is going to be the person who is going to make the most friction here? That's what we're here to discuss. Now, with that, I, I just want to explain what's going on. You see, there is like I said about the prison system. So here is the person who's been quetching nonstop about my behavioral pattern. But that person, the individual in my life, has adapted to this pattern. They have learned how to work the system of this pattern. And now when you change on them, what does that leave them? Especially so if the significant other in your life may also have very unhealthy behavioral patterns. Let's be very clear. Let's put it out on the table clearly so we can talk about it. What happens if you're a significant other in your life, which could be a parent, which could be a spouse, whoever it may be, a working partner. We're talking about someone who you cannot easily ignore. And getting rid of them in your life would not just be breaking up a friendship and goodbye. We're talking about a serious person who you're attached to. Now, what happens if that individual also has unhealthy patterns. For example, the person knows to get something out of you, they will manipulate, abuse, quetch, relentless. These are patterns we're all familiar with as humans. Now, if you're going to make a change from the unhealthy pattern to a healthy pattern, you're not gonna be reacting no more to that type of behavior. Well, where does that leave your significant other? So this significant other is going to give you friction. Of course he or she was quetching about the way you behave and what you do and what you don't do and your responsibility, that goes on and on. But if you actually do change, that's not just gonna change you. That's gonna change them. They don't want to change. They worked it out. They have it down to a T. They know your buttons. They know how to work on your shame, on your guilt, they know how to be relentless. They know how to get you exasperated where you just give in because you just don't want to fight no more. 
So what happens here is your changing means that you don't react to that no more because you're taking on a healthy set of rules in your own life, which has no more room for that type of behavior, which means that they're not getting the results they're used to getting. They have to change their behavior. You can expect friction. Let's talk about another scenario. What's about, and by the way, this usually happens from a husband to a wife. Seldomly it happens in reverse. But in my experience, it mostly happens from the husband to wife. How many times does the male go ahead and complain how the woman is a financial liability, does not work for a living, therefore has no appreciation of the value of money, bills, budgeting? What happens when the significant other, the spouse, I'm going to just say just by generalization, it's usually on my, on my table, it's usually the man complaining about the woman. When I do counseling, it's usually the husband complains about the wife. You do have seldom cases where there's Mr. Mom and then she's the breadwinner. And I don't mean seldom like belittling it. I'm just saying it's the way society works that men most of the times feel the responsibility, whether it's right or wrong. Today, everyone has a true income and we don't survive without it. And very often you have the female bringing in more income than the male. But I'm just saying from what comes to my counseling table, very often that's the way it works. Well, let me t share with you a very interesting scenario. So let's say it's a husband-wife situation. And the wife decides, you know what, he's right. I'm talented. My, I, and you know, the kids are now in school. I don't need to be home no more. Let me pursue my, my dreams. Let me go ahead and get a job. Let me go ahead and open up a business. Let me go do something. You can bet on the next scenario being that that complaining husband is going to have serious issues with what she's doing. But why? Mr. So-and-so, hasn't this been your complaint? Aren't you happy that she finally listened to you and she's going to earn money? Why are you quetching? Well, I'll tell you a little secret why. Because as much as he was quetching about it, the fact that she didn't have a job did give him a control factor over her. Besides a control factor, it also gave him certainty that she won't be leaving because she can't, quote unquote, make it on her own. She needs him. Now all of a sudden she gets a job and guess what? She's good at what she does. She opened up a business. She's responsible. She's producing. All of a sudden, there's a loss, a shift in control. All of a sudden, there's no written guarantee of certainty that she's to be taken for granted that she will be every day, every morning when you wake up there. She might decide, you know, I was hanging into this relationship only because of the money and I don't need it no more, so why do I have to put up with this? So once again, the significant other may be the exact person who's going to get into the way when you try to really make a change. And that becomes very, very difficult. The one who probably was the cause for you to finally wake up and say, I need to change. The one who you expected to be supportive of your change. The one that you can't just walk out on without significant, significant ramifications. And this is the person being my biggest challenge in my change. I mean, I got enough problems with myself with my change. I'm still dealing with that. I don't like to leave my comfort zone. I don't like the uncomfortability. I myself am dealing with fears, insecurities. I've never done this. I'm going out there. This is unfamiliar and familiar to me. And now what I need out of all situations is the person who I'm most connected to to be the primary point of conflict. 
the hypocrisy behind it. That's what we're here to discuss today. Okay? With that being said, I do want to point out the closing question of my subtitle is something quite serious. I asked over here, is it one or the other? See, when you start seriously working the change and you start realizing that your strongest point of conflict is your significant other, you may start thinking, ouch, it seems to be that they're mutually exclusive. Not only that, I will tell you that many times your best friend or even a therapist will give you their professional opinion that you will not be able to change as long as you're in this relationship. They see the significant other as a serious, I want to use the word non-repairable part of your past and you will not be able to change if you're still in that environment. The question over here is, is it exclusively mutual? I'm trying to change. The significant other is causing the biggest conflict, the most friction, my greatest antagonist. And now I need to sit down and ask myself, is change and my past relationship mutually exclusive or can they be inclusive? That is a serious question we're going to deal with today. A very serious question. But before I deal with that question, I want to share with you two serious warnings. Warning number one. We often hide behind that accusation when the real issue is that we are stuck in Einstein's definition of insanity. We're not willing to change the way we do things. And because we don't want to blame ourselves, the easiest thing to do is to blame our significant other. And at that point, we see ourselves as very noble because we don't want to have to ruin that other person's life, destroy my family, destroy the company, breaking up a partnership, go ahead and create some serious havoc between my parents and me, or it be my kids and me. So therefore, I'm going to forego my dreams of different results, and I'm going to stay to this. And really what's happening is it's the man in the mirror. So don't be very quick to point a finger at your significant other and saying, that's the reason I don't change. I just can't face up that antagonist. I don't want to kick up all the dirt that's going to have to be kicked up here. So forget it. I'll just compromise. And you know what? Maybe in my next reincarnation. Be careful. Be careful that you're not just using your significant other as an excuse. Warning number one. Warning number two. Beware. Sometimes the answer to that last question is unfortunately yes. Sometimes you cannot change with this specific individual who is your significant other. Sometimes children who come to me in older ages need to be told that their relationship with their parents needs to be in great measure severed. Sometimes people that come to me, you know, unfortunately the answer has to be divorce. 
So when you deal with that, I just want to share. Like I said, you'll sometimes get premature advice from a friend or even a professional. And what you need to do is realize that change is going to create friction. It's expected. It's what's real. And what you need to do is you need to have consistency and time. If after due diligence, I'm talking about a serious due diligence of consistency, consistency and time, you then find out that it is unfortunately true. This relationship cannot continue if you're to change. Then I just want to share with you that I am not of the suggestion and opinion that anyone needs to be a sacrifice for anyone else. There are ways to do it. There's a reason why the Torah allows for divorce. There's a reason why the laws concerning honoring your parents allows for hiring someone else because you cannot have direct contact. There are reasons why the Jewish law makes room for this. So as the first beware is, don't be quick to point a finger. Even if you're being supported by your friends and by therapist professionals, do not be quick to point that finger. Make sure it's not the person in the mirror. Give change its course of due diligence, of consistency, and time. If you're expecting your significant other to react to your change, you've got to have consistency, and you've got to give it time, allowing for trust and for you know, consistency to show its fruits. But if that after all of that, you still find that this is a problem. This happens very much in addiction. In addiction, unfortunately, sometimes you need to cut off even your closest marital relationships for you to get out into a healthy place. Because if the other person is also involved and is not willing to do recovery and you are willing to take on recovery, sometimes we need to cut off. So do not sacrifice yourself for anyone. God did not tell you to do that. Okay? Now, let's get to the lecture. Let's talk about the topic at hand. So, I'm going to change the question. The question now becomes, why is God so challenging me? Let's change the question for a moment. Let's talk about the root of the situation here. Why is God, why is God challenging me? God sees. He knows my heart. He knows my mind. He knows that I've really been through it. He knows I've reached my breaking point. He knows that this time I'm for real. I'm going to make a change. I'm working my change. Why is he challenging me? Why isn't he being supportive of me? It seems to be that the more I try to change, the more I'm having problems. I have that all the time with people doing teshuvah. I started keeping Shabbat. My financing went down to south. You know, I'm trying to keep kosher. I'm losing all my relationships. I became shoman Nagia. I can't even get a date. And it goes on and on and on. I mean, hello, God. Are you working with me or what? So the question here on the table is, why is God so challenging me? It seems to be that God isn't accepting my resolution to change. And he's throwing every possible wrench that there could be into the process. Why, God? So I'm going to share with you a story, one of my own personal favorite stories. And I use this story to help me understand the challenges of teshuva. So Dr. Moskowitz, the heart surgeon, brings his motorcycle to the mechanic. Motorcycle, the mechanic realizes it's an engine problem. And he starts, you know, opening up the engine. He's doing his work. 
Dr. Moskowitz is in the waiting room reading a magazine, and all of a sudden he hears the mechanic calling for him. Dr. Moskowitz, you mind coming here? I have a question for you. Okay, he comes. And as he's working, he turns around to Dr. Moskowitz and says, I, I, may I ask you a question? This engine is the heart of a motorcycle. And I am actually right now performing open heart surgery. How come you get so much money, thousands upon thousands of dollars for your surgery, and I don't? And Dr. Moskowitz looks at the mechanic and says, why don't you try doing that surgery while the motor is working? Now, the joke is a joke, but I want to tell you what the joke means to me. The joke means to me that teshuva cannot take place in the protected, controlled environment of your mind and heart. You cannot sit down alone, do meditation, and in your mind and heart decide, I am going to do teshuva. Now, by the way, that is mandatory. You don't get teshuva without it. But that's not where teshuva really can take place. Because if life does not continue and you're not hit with the challenges of life, we don't know if your teshuva, your resolution, your change is real. I'd like to talk to you about something called sustainability. Something I want to share with you, something I learned in business books. In business books, it talks about that in any field you're going to go into business, you got to create for your company a point of difference. If you don't have a point of difference, understand that any field you're going to go into, from uh, making uh, diapers to real estate to whatever you're going to make, there are a huge amount of competitors. And now the customer needs to have this question answered for you to succeed. Why should I come to you? Basically, all companies, at the end of the day, they're producing the same product. So why should I come to you? Now, that becomes your point of difference. And as a salesman, as a negotiator, what you're going to say is, well, it is true that company ABC, our competitors, are actually very good at what they do. I want to share with you our company's point of difference. And then you go on to say, well, we have superior products. We don't sell lower end. Uh, we give a warranty. We are service. We have 24-7 customer service. Whatever it's going to be. You sell your point of difference. And now they say, okay, you know what? You're the one I'm going to go with. Or they may say, your point of difference doesn't make a difference to me in my scenario. I'd rather have a cheaper and lower end product than expensive and higher end product, you know? I, I don't need that type of 24 hour service. I got my own tech team or whatever it's going to be. But that's going to be the key in making your business. You need to create, if you want to call it a brand, your point of difference. Now this is what I learned. I learned that your point of difference will depend upon sustainability. A key word, sustainability. You come out with a huge point of difference. It's great. People are flocking to you. Your books are reflecting booming results. But a little problem. You cannot sustain your point of difference. It just becomes impossible. What do you think is going to happen to your results? What do you think is going to happen to all your customers? You won't be able to sustain your results. You won't be able to sustain your customers. So when you create a point of difference, you must create sustainability. JetBlue, by the way, JetBlue Airlines is an interesting 
case study for this. JetBlue started off as kind of like Spirit started off, your cheap airlines, we can get you cheap tickets. They saw that that's not sustainable and they changed. They changed to now creating an amazing brand of the JetBlue experience. On time departures, more leg room, one luggage free. And what happened actually is that they created a following which if possible, they will always go JetBlue. So they had one point of difference. They realized this isn't sustainable. They changed their point of difference, which is sustainable. Will they get everyone? No. They probably lost a lot of people's Spirit Airlines who want the cheaper. I'm not going to get into Spirit Airlines. My own little pet peeve over here. But there's an interesting thing here. Did they? You try to get everyone, you're going to get no one. But they did focus in on their point of difference and they made sure it's something sustainable, it's reliable on every JetBlue flight, you can expect it. So much for my business lecture today. Let's return back to our topic, our conversation between Dr. Moskowitz and the mechanic. You see, change, teshuva, isn't real unless it's sustainable. You cannot create something that's sustainable within the protected environment of your own mind and heart. The engine must continue working if you want your teshuva, your change, your growth that you're committed to, your resolutions, that new results that's going to be the outcome of your change in behavioral patterns. For that to become real and sustainable, it cannot be isolated from the realities of your environment. No one is going to get out of your way to make your change possible. Your change won't be real if everyone has to get out of the way for you to change. So if we don't have the consistency of bills, struggles, nagging, if that environment doesn't continue during your change, then your change will not be real it will not be sustainable. That's one of the hugest worries any parent has or any spouse has or even the individual himself going through recovery. Recovery is doable in a recovery center. But then I come out and my own friends start calling me. The people who did that and want me back there with them What's about the suppliers who want their income? I mean, I can go on and on with the scene. Will I be able to hold on to my change of behavior once I leave the recovery? Obviously, the story I told you in Albany, that guy decided no. He wanted back in. But what do you think you're going to do? Do you think that you're going to create a protected environment for yourself? Yes, we try to do that. It's interesting, but in the AA book, they write clearly that they have found that it is not their belief to make sure that the alcoholic does not walk ever down the blood street where there's a bar, that the drug addict does not walk ever down the street where there's people selling narcotics. It won't work. You just need to know for yourself what reason are you going there. It needs to be a good reason and then you need to be committed to, I'm not going down that path again. Yeah, it's available to me. By the way, my dear friends, today's children rearing 
is very different than once upon a time. Our parents protected us from certain neighborhoods. Well, if you have internet in your house, you can forget that. So sustainable only happens by the reality of life. And the fact that I can behave when I ran away to some monastery in Japan doesn't mean that when I come back I can behave. So all of a sudden we understand what Dr. Moskowitz is telling the mechanic, at least the way I took the story. I'm not saying that's what the guy who made the joke was thinking. But that's what hit me when I read this joke. So let me ask you another question. Aha! So in order to have sustainability, we need to have challenges. <laughs> but God, couldn't you give me a good six months to a year before you test me with the challenges? I mean, come on, give me some time. <laughs> Imagine this, okay? So Yankala goes to an anger management course. And he passed the course. He has signed, he passed the course. And he's learned that he controls his anger in all situations until his wife pushes his button. <laughs> what kind of anger management is that? So I understand for sustainability, I need to have it. I need to have the challenges. And most importantly, I need to have the challenges of the people who are most connected to because that's going to create the sustainability and the reality of my change. And if my change is real, then the results will change drastically and real. But my question is, why Hashem? Why couldn't you give me a, a grace period? And the answer is another story. So there was a man walking along the road and he sees a farmer looking at his brand new little sprouting, you know, new harvest growing. And the weather is horrific. And the guy turns around to the farmer and says, what a shame. If only they would have first grown and then the weather would have been challenging, there would have been a chance. But look at this. They're so young, so fragile, so new. The, the weather is going to destroy them. And the farmer turns around to this guy and says, uh, sir, a maven in agriculture, you're not. I said, what do you mean? He says, well, let me tell you how it works. You see, if the weather would be nice now, then all creatures are lazy, including plants. They will not grow longer roots than they need. But if the weather now is rough, they're going to fight for survival. They're going to make sure they have deep roots, grow thick trunk. So when the weather later hits them, they'll have what to survive with. But if the weather was nice now, making it easy for them, and then comes along, they don't have the roots they need to be able to withstand. So now we're understanding that change does demand right up front reality. It demands right up front that I need to face the challenges of life, and under those challenges, I need to be able to sustain the resolution, conviction, and commitment to change. So all of a sudden we're seeing an interesting twist. All of a sudden we're seeing that the challenges, and primarily the challenges of our significant other, the one that we're so dependent, codependent, interdependent, everything going on over there, the one where it's most real, whether my change will be sustainable, Will it be actual or will it be just another frustrated dream? That's where it happens. We need that to make our change real and sustainable.
Now, there's an interesting saying. What won't break you will make you. The question is, how do I make sure that it makes me and doesn't break me? So we get the logic here. <laughs> All of a sudden, thank you, Hashem, for giving me such a significant other that is relentless and doesn't back off for a second and is constantly making sure that I'm real in my resolution. But I have a teeny weeny little bit, of, little bit of a question here, God. What do I do to make sure that this makes me and doesn't break me? So many of us get broken rather than made by challenges. That's the question on the table now. For that, we're going to turn to the story of Noah and the flood. It's going to be a very, very interesting insight that the Rebbe teaches about the story of Noah and the flood. So guys, introducing Noah. This week's Torah portion, we read the story of Noah and the flood. Everyone, everyone, all living beings, including the bo bo botanical world, was obliterated. One family, one set of non-kosher animals, seven kosher animals, all the seeds that were brought into the ark survived. Here's an interesting talk the Rebbe once gave on us learning the eternal lesson from the story of Noah and the flood. And the Rebbe focused on the following pasuk in this week's parsha, And it goes as follows. The waters increased. They lifted the ark and it rose off the earth. What a beautiful line. So it seems to be the story of Noah is once again the saying I shared with you. What doesn't break you makes you. There were those that were broken by the raging waters of the floods and those that not only survived, remember we're not talking about survival here, but they were lifted. It rose up upon the earth. Noah's ark was cubits higher than the highest mountain. Not only didn't it destroy him, not only didn't it break him, it actually took him to unprecedented heights in his own commitment, his own conviction, in his own life. Okay, let's get back to the question. What do we need to do to make sure that we don't drown in the raging floodwaters, but rather that we're lifted up, raised to unprecedented heights? What do we need to do? Okay, let's talk about the secret of the ark. Do you know what the secret of the ark is? Airtight. No holes. If there's a hole in the boat, the boat's going to sink. And then in the Rebbe's teaching, the Rebbe goes on to a teaching of the Holy Baal Shem Tov, which says that the word ark in Hebrew, teva, also means word. And that's what God told Noah, go into the word. If you want to sustain, if you want to be able to overcome, and not only overcome, but use to your advantage the raging waters of financial struggles and, and all the other struggles that go on in life, you need to enter into airtight, sealed words of prayer and words of Torah. And when you have that moment every day where you go into airtight, sealed words of prayer, and then you go into the airtight, sealed words of Torah study, then not only won't the raging waters of the economy, of the domestic issues, of the health issues, and of a business issue, everything, social issues, not only won't it drown you, it will actually rise you up. For as the waters increase, your ark will be lifted. 
Now let's talk about this and translate this into our, our topic today. The only way that the antagonism of those closest to you, those creating the greatest friction to change, won't break you. Not only it won't break you, it'll actually serve as creating reality and sustainability of your new changes is only if your resolution is airtight. If there is any holes of uncertainty, shame, doubt, then you can be sure that your significant other will break you down. If your conviction in your heart, if your certainty, if you have cracks in your arc of past shame, I don't deserve this. It'll always come back to haunt me. What am I even trying for? Been there, done that. You can be sure that the raging waters will purge through those cracks and your ship will sink. It will not rise up. So what do we need to do in order to make sure that the, I'm going to use a painful word here, opportunity of your relentless significant other will rise you up rather than drown you, what you need to do is create airtight conviction, resolution, and faith. And I chose those three words very, very specifically. Because if your conviction or your resolution or your faith that you could change, if you don't have the faith of the bird, that the early bird gets the worm, but you're still plagued by maybe my past shame, it, lends me, it leads me to be a worm and the early worm gets eaten, forget it. Your relentless significant other will chop you up in pieces. If you're not sure that what you're doing is right, if you're not absolute in your faith that God is with you, then you're going to be plagued when you don't react to the once upon a time manipulation abusiveness. Because you're going to start feeling, well, you know, I've done so much wrong. How can I say no? How can I not give in? It's so mean what I'm doing. Can't I see that the significant other is crying, screaming, fighting, threatening? It isn't that other that's plaguing you. The raging waters mean nothing to you if you're in an airtight, sealed ark. Not only it won't hurt you, it'll rise you up. It'll create sustainability. It'll create reality. I'm not a changed man in controlled environments. But if you don't have that airtight, that's the problem. My friends, have you ever seen when you go with a flat, how they test the tube? They put it into water. And what are they looking for? They're looking for the hole. If they're going to find where the hole is, they're looking for the bubbles. So that's what's happening here. 
When you see the relentlessness and the friction and the antagonism of those that you expected support from, well, guess what? They are giving you support. Support in a very tough love fashion. And they may not be realizing it. I'm not telling you that's what their intentions are. Their intentions are because they don't want to change. They figured out the system. They got your buttons. They got your numbers. They know how many times they have to quetch and quetch and quetch before you give in. They know what to say. They know where to break you. But forget what they're doing because at the end of the day, we've discussed this so many times. The story of Joseph and his brothers. He told his brothers, your issues between you and God. To me, you were just waiters, waitresses. I need to deal with the cook. The cook in my life is always God. Everyone else is just a waiter. So my issues isn't you. What you're having in mind when you do these nasty things, that's between you and God. I need to know why God is doing this to me. And God is a God of compassion. And as the verse states, no evil comes from above. So it's opportunity. I just need to see that. And what opportunity is it? It's the opportunity for me to find the holes in my ark. And what happens when I do find a hole? What happens if I, when I find out where the leak is? What do I do? What you do is you seal that hole. You stuff that hole. With what? With deeper conviction. With deeper resolution. With deeper faith that this will work. You're doing what's right. It's what has to be done. And it will work. Consistency, consistency and time will prove that this will work. So if you can see them, the significant other, as the big tub of water, and you can see God pushing your tube into the water so that you can find if there exist any holes, where the hole exists, for what reason? Not to render you flat, but that you can seal the hole. Now we're understanding that the question of why are you stopping me? Why are you getting me in the way? No, no, no. That's maybe what they're thinking, but that's not what God's thinking. And what's important to you is to realize why God is doing this. So you can utilize it for the right way. So every time I'm being tested by my significant other, whoever it may be, my boss, my partner, my sibling, my parent, my spouse, my kids, they're testing to help you make sure that it's airtight because if not, my friend, you're going to drown. Let's talk about an interesting teaching there is from Tanya. You ever notice that there are two reactions to a person sitting in shul trying to dive in with two people sitting behind them, yentiving away, usually with gossip? There's two reactions. One reaction is to turn around and start shushing so loud that you're making more noise than the people talking, which always happens. But then there's another answer, which Alter Rebbe writes about in Tanya. That you realize, forget who's talking. That's God sticking my tube into the water. Because if I want to not be disturbed by their talking, what do I need to do? I need to dive deeper into my mind, deeper into my heart, stronger into my conviction, to my faith that I'm talking to God and God is listening to me now. And all of a sudden you refer to the great verse, Thank you God for challenging me. Because I was in cruise control in my prayer. And now you forced me out of cruise control. You forced me into accelerate, take control, live in the moment. 
That's what the antagonism of our significant others offer us. So all of a sudden we realize that what's being presented to us here is the opportunity to ferment, to solidify, to create sustainability and reality of the changes that we need to make to have different results. In closing, yes, we're going to go back to for a moment to the Baal Shem Tov's teaching that the Rebbe says, where do I get the strength to solidify, to seal the holes in my resolution, in my faith, in my conviction? It is in the morning moments of prayer. When you go into an airtight bubble of you and God talking, really, really feeling that God is listening to you, it strengthens your faith. And when you are plagued with doubt, what I'm doing, is it right? The people around me are hurting. Is this the right thing to do? Then entering into the Torah study really creates certainty. Knowing what to do and how to do it. And to know that this is what the Torah says is right. And if it's right for me, it must be right for them. Of course, the child screams when you take away the candy. But that doesn't mean it's the wrong thing to do. But it's hard. It's hard to hear a loved spouse crying, quetching, threatening, screaming. It's hard to see your partner doing the same. It's hard to see your kids do that. It's hard to have to face your parents and realize, you know, this parent is someone that's unhealthy for me. So I need to honor my father and mother, but I got to see what the Torah law says how to do this. And they keep on reaching out to me. And there goes the guilt. I was there, you. I changed your diapers, and I was there for you, and I didn't. This is a haka. One parent can handle 10 kids. 10 kids can't handle one parent, and all the guilt that goes with it. It leaves you with holes of uncertainty. It leaves you with holes of shame from your own mistakes in the past. Who am I to say or to think? You need to enter into the tight, airtight words of Torah. I need to ask someone else, tell me something. What does the Torah say about this? I want an objective view. I can't do it by myself. If I open up the Code of Jewish Law myself, it's objective. So the Baal Shem Tov is telling us that if you want to make sure that not only you don't drown, but you rise up, the raging waters help you seal the holes and rise you up and rise you up, then you need to enter into the airtight words of prayer to create certainty in your faith. You need to enter into airtight words of Torah study to create the airtight certainty, the absolute certainty in what you're doing is right. So what we said today here was that the challenges that God presents to you is opportunity because it all is about the point of difference. What are you going to change if you're not going to fall back into Einstein's definition of insanity? The point of difference. I need to do something different today than I did yesterday if I want a different result today than I had yesterday. But the difference is useless if it's not sustainable. Up, down. Where am I back now? Sustainability is created through subjecting it to reality. And that reality is offered for you, to you painfully, but offered to you by those closest to you. The ones you can't ignore. The ones you can't detach from without very huge ramifications. So you can't run and hide. 
You've got to deal with it. So I want to close up the lecture with the following sentence. How do we do it? We hear the logic. We hear everything. We understand why. We understand it's actually a good thing. Bittersweet chocolate, but it's chocolate. <laughs> so I'm going to read this to you. This is my closing sentence. By focusing on the holes of your ship, rather on the insignificant other with their raging waters. That is what I'm saying to you today. I'm going to read it again. How do we make sure that the other person, not only aren't they getting in our way, not only they aren't stopping us, not only isn't it exclusive, it's actually inclusive, and my rising up actually can depend upon the antagonism that I'm getting. What makes the difference between break you or make you? I'm going to reread the sentence. By focusing on the holes in your ship, rather on the significant other with their raging waters. That's the difference between making or breaking. If I'm going to sit and just focus on my significant other and what they're doing to me, and this is ridiculous, and da yada yada yada, I'm going to end up broken. If I'm focusing on why is this water getting into my ship? Where is the hole? Seal it up. Seal it up with strengthening. Strengthening my faith, my resolution, my conviction. The sustainability and reality of my change. Then I won't be broken. On the contrary, I'll be made. So I close again with reading the line. By focusing on the holes in your ship rather than on the significant other with their raging waters. Good luck, my friends.